You're listening to the PK Experience Podcast, where I celebrate and amplify today's impact players. My name is Peter King. I'm the host of the show, and my guest today is Eve Wiley. Eve has a crazy story. I came across it on ABC's 2020. She essentially uh, was the victim of fertility fraud, which means that uh, her mother used a sperm sample to conceive Eve, but what she thought was her biological father was actually not her biological father. So she was thrust into this advocacy role to push for donor-conceived rights, which there really was no precedence before Eve. So uh, to Eve's huge credit, she has been working tirelessly to change the law or actually to create the law to have some rights for the victims of fertility fraud. And um, when we recorded the call, she still didn't know just yet what was going to happen with the law. About a week after we recorded the call, um, they did come out, Texas did come out and say that they uh, have signed a new law that protects, uh, actually I have the article right here, it says, Texas will be the first state to make it a sexual assault crime for a healthcare provider to knowingly implant sperm, eggs, or embryos from a donor that the patient has not expressly consented to use, which is exactly what happened in Eve's case. Uh, like I said, it's very tragic, but at the same time, um, through Eve's hard work, it does uh, have a happy ending, thankfully. So um, I'm going to let Eve tell the story. Like I said, it's a wild story and has a lot of turns and twists in it that uh, would make the average person probably throw their hands up and just say, I give up. But Eve has persevered. Here I am with Eve Wiley. All right, I'm here with Eve Wiley. Eve, thank you for taking the time to be on the, the uh, podcast today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you have quite the story to tell. Quite a, quite a journey. <laughs> My goodness. I, I heard about you. I, I saw a program on TV and I was like, this is like, is this for real? Mm. Um, so I want to, yeah, I wanted to have you on the, on the podcast to share what you've learned about yourself and how other people are dealing with similar situations. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, do you just want me to start kind of like the let's next just, version of it? Let's just start at the beginning and You've only told it a few times. I'm sure you're getting sick of hearing it, of, of sharing it, but it becomes monotone after a while, where I just feel like I'm doing like you know, oil reading or something. We'll get up and do so, jumping jacks or something. Too. Right. I'll try to not um, keep it so still. But um, okay, so my name is Eve Wiley. Um, I grew up in a really small town in East Texas called Center. My parents struggled with infertility for years, and at the direction of their fertility doctor, they looked into artificial reproductive technologies. In particular, they landed on artificial insemination by an anonymous sperm donor. So this was in the 80s, not like it is now with sperm banks, but with California Cryobank, they gave my parents this, you know, the doctor did this one sheet of paper, and each donor had one line, and it gave physical characteristics, um, you know, interest, and uh, an education. And so that's how they selected um, the donor and they selected donor 106. So, so I'm sorry, what was your, was your father then infertile? Was that the issue that they were? Right. So my mom was having some issues and then um, my dad was as well. So there was also secondary infertility. Okay. And so that's why they kind of, and they were a little bit older, you know, at the time. And so that's kind of why they decided the um, artificial reproductive technology route. Got it. Because I would think that that would, in and of itself, would create an interesting, if not difficult, dynamic between parents. Like, this is not 
technically my child if I was the dad, you know what I mean? That would be, that would be hard. Well, and that's a really good point because a lot of parents, recipient parents, um, they do have difficult feelings and complicated feelings around this that they are not always aware of. So a lot of times, you know, a lot of people talk about how the pain of infertility gets passed on to the child because this child essentially is a band-aid. So instead of grieving the loss of not being able to have a child, Mm -hmm. they're going to artificial reproductive technologies and just kind of repairing that. What ends up happening is that, at least in the 80s, is that um, they were instructed not to tell the child. And so the recipient parents tend to feel very threatened when a child wants to know their other biological parent. Right. And so I think it's really important to recognize that when you value the biological connection over adoption, you also have to value that child's desire to want to know their other biological parent, right? 100%. It's not mutually exclusive. It's either valued or it's not valued. And so a lot of recipient parents, they, they feel pretty threatened by that. So there's, you know, this other, not, not all of them, but a lot of them do. Sure. So, so yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right with that. Got it. So, all right. So your, your parents were looking into the different technologies of the time and uh, let's pick up from there. Right. So they selected donor 106 and that's how I was born. Um, I believe it's eight inseminations, which is a lot. Hmm. And it was through an IUI. So she was never put under or anything like that. It was just, here's the sample frozen sample from California cryobank and then inserting it into my mother through an IUI. So that's how I was born. And then fortunately for them, they were pregnant when I was four months old. So I have a little sister who's 14 months younger than I am, and it's their, their natural child together. So it was a huge surprise after, you know, struggling oh with fertility gosh. for a while. Oh, so I know. Like, Two oh, infants at home immediately. Within oh my gosh. Well, my mom says that it's like worse than twins because we were right on different development stages, you know? Well, at least with twins, you only have nine months in the oven, like with two babies, that's 18 months of pregnancy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so that's one way to put it. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, a, I'm a guy. So I, I, don't know. Fun. I know you get the easy job. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so then, so that dad, Doug passed away when I was seven years old and my mom recognized at that point that, mm-hmm. you know, Hey, what has come up for Eve medically wise? Because, Doug died from cardiomyopathy, which is a heart disease. And so now they were looking at my sister's, my little sister's preventative healthcare plans um, to, to help her kind of make some, you know, environmental changes and um, nature changes to not um, develop that heart disease, if that makes sense. For me, you know, half of my identity is completely denied. And so my mom started communicating with California Cryobank to try and get more medical information for me. At the time, the way that it was set up was you could submit your, your mother's medical records when you're 18 years old, then they would update their medical records if they could, and then send it back to you. And so that's what my mom was doing is she was communicating with them. She's a school nurse um, at our really tiny high school. And um, I was going through her emails, trying to get some juicy gossip on my cohort <laughs> and found some juicy gossip on myself. Oh boy. <laughs> Should have learned my lesson the first time. Yeah, I know. And I read that correspondence and I saw my birth date and I was just like, what in the hell? Because my first thought was, what is my mom doing with my grandfather's cattle? 
because he had cattle and like sperm donations and, you know, livestock um, stuff was not out of the ordinary. But when I saw my birth date, it was like, whoa. This wait, wait, wait. Is- so you're, you're looking through your mother's email uh, mm-hmm. and you're a Texas girl, so that you got cattle and th- that's a very Texas thing yeah. for those who are not in Texas, <laughs> right? <clears throat> um, but you come up, what, what email do you come across it exactly? Her correspondence with California Cryobank. She was okay. trying to get updated medical records from Donor 106. Got it. And they were communicating the protocol to her to get her medical records. And, um, and then when I turned 18, I would be able to submit those um, to California Cryobank. So but she's doing this unbeknownst to you at the time, or at least she thought it was unbeknownst to you, and then you right. came across it. Okay. And then I found that, and she was trying to figure out you know, how do I tell Eve this? And, you know, when I was seven, how do you explain that to a seven-year-old when you really don't understand the um, complexities and the concept of death, or I was just getting to the age that I would, well, that's not your real dad because you're really a test tube baby. And, you know, so it was just too complicated. um, But he was your dad as far as you knew at seven years old. Right. Right. It wasn't so that was, 16 that I figured it out. Okay. So, but it, uh, um, I'm sorry, when did Doug pass on? When I was seven. Okay. So your dad died basically. Right. Okay. So that's, wow. Okay. So in your mind as a young child, your father's passed on. Now you've come across this other email. What is going on? There's another donor. What? Okay. So gosh, what's going through your head at this point? Well, the first thing was, oh my gosh, I have a dad. Okay. Because, you know, the concept of a dad for me and that kind of construct, um, it's been so fluid. I was seven, so I, I did have that, you know, sense of identity with that. But since that, my construct, at least my social construct of a father, had been very flexible and very fluid. So I was so curious. I, I wanted to know who this person was. I don't look like anyone in my family. I don't really act yeah. like them. So I was so curious, you know? Yeah. And then I was really frustrated because – I was being told that, you know, this is the only thing that I'm born with is my, is our, my biological identity, right? Mm-hmm. And then I'm being denied it immediately. And so I was really frustrated with that process as well, because I just felt like, you know, why is identity a privilege at this point? It should be a biological right. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of frustration with that. Who's doing well. the denying at this point? Was it your mother or was it the system or... The system, California Cryobank. But there's also a lot, you know, there's a lot that's changed when it comes to um, the social stigma around infertility and around using donors, because now we have open donor programs and things like that. But at the time, that that wasn't the case. And a lot of donors who did this in college, uh, some of them feel pretty embarrassed about it. And it's Mm -hmm. difficult to explain, you know, 18, 20, 30 years later to your wife and your family that, you know, you were jacking off in the cup and then now you've got all these kids running around. Right. So, and then it's complicated. The entire fertility industry is essentially self-regulated. And so if you're a popular donor, that's all you want to do is get pregnant. So you're, you're going to be, continue to be a popular donor. So there's no cap on donations. You could have three offspring or you could have 3000 offspring. That's nuts. Holy cow. So what, what makes a, a donor popular? What, like, what are, women looking for live births what's that live births motility rate got it so they're looking at past um uh, births got it okay right and sperm banks and the cryobanks they're really good at 
you know, advertising and gathering all that data Mm -hmm. um, just to show, like, look at these awesome donors we have. Choose us over any other, you know, sperm bank out there. It's their product. Right. And it's literally, it reminds me of kind of a menu. You go on, it's like, okay, you want to add a voice clip. Okay. Add the cart so you can hear. You want to hear them, you know, read a chapter of a book. Add. You want to see baby pictures. Add. It's it's crazy. It's it's like going through a catalog. It's so weird. So that's really, I mean, that's really coming even more to the forefront with technological advances. I mean, we're going to have designer babies very soon. If not, in some cases we already are, but I mean, even more so. Uh, That's nuts. Um, Okay. So you're at what age again, then that you're, you're starting to find, trying to find out who the actual donor is. 16. So that's when I kind of figured all this out. I, I was really empathetic to my mother and I completely understood um, when I turned 18, I was eligible to get my medical records. So my mom still had her medical records. We sent them off to California Cryobank. They called, I'm just, I think this was the protocol. They called the doctor's office and confirmed like the purchasing records that he had purchased donor 106. And, um, and then it was listed in my mom's medical records, donor 106. So about a year goes by. And I finally get an email from California Cryobank saying that they'd located donor 106 and, um, and they had sent, I wrote him a letter and they had sent that letter. And, and then what did the, letter say? the letter was basically like, hi, my name is Eve. Um, I think I was living in Austin at the time. Um, I'm financially secure. I'm not looking for anything like that. I just really want to know more about you. And then here's all this about me. Um, and I'm pretty sure I asked like 9,000 questions. <laughs> like, oh my God, I'm like a little lab. Please don't reject me. Right. Oh, so, man. but I was really excited. He, and, and I only say that, you know, this works because he is who he is and I am who I am, but we just, we started this very natural relationship and it very quickly progressed to me calling him dad, you know, saying, I love you. When I decided to get married, we were trying to figure out how we could include Steve, donor 106. And um, we asked him to officiate our wedding. My kids call him Papa. Um, We spend holidays together. And I'm really close with his social children, which means the children that he reared um, as well. So for the last 13 years, it has really been this fairy tale kind of story with, you know, very much a new definition of a modern family. Yeah. been a really great story. That's incredible. So from age 18 for the next decade or so, you're developing a relationship with him. Was it mostly over the phone at first? What was it like when you first saw him? So it was. At first it was, I would send the emails to the cryobank, they would forward it to him, and then he would reply to the cryobank, and then they would forward it to me. Mm. And then eventually we just started talking on the phone and then communicating directly. He flew down to Austin to meet me, and then he came back a few months later to meet my mom. Um, And that was interesting. It's like, hey, mom, this is dad. Dad, this is mom. Oh, weird. (laughs) Oh, gosh, I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah, like. We had a baby together and we don't even know each other. Right. And it's like, and now we're looking at the product of it. (laughs) Well, well, and then, I mean, do they see a little bit of themselves in you? You know what I mean? Like, oh, I can see the mom a little bit here. Oh, that'd be wild to have to process that. When it's crazy because with his social children, 
especially the eldest one, we look so much alike. Mm-hmm. Like there was never a doubt in my mind mm-hmm. at that point. Mm-hmm. And if there was any kind of like shift with anything or any um, questioning, I could always fall back on, well, I mean, I didn't grow up with him as, you know, my biological father, you know, those neural pathways are not set. So I could always fall back on that, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. In what way though? Really, really natural. Like if anything, just like thought, cause I would always was like, well, I guess this is what it's like to have a biological father, you know, mm-hmm. that type of thing. And, you know, I just didn't know, I didn't know any different. I get people that ask me, it's like, well, didn't you feel like it was him? And I'm like, yeah, I did. Yeah. That's what I mean by that. Yeah. Got it. Um, so, but when you, when you first did see him, was it a, was it a, a fairy tale like running and jumping into his arms or was it more of a, this is a, <laughs> what's that? I said, I didn't jump. Um, yes, it was. I mean, we just immediately hugged and then we stayed up just talking forever. Like it just, everything felt so just natural. And, you know, he is just such a warm and loving person and just so easy to talk to. So I'm sure that contributed to, you know, most of it. Um, but it was just, it was awesome. Mm -hmm. And so with his social children, you're now really embracing them as extended family to it. An extent, is that right? Right. So I was much older, much older. I was maybe like six or seven years older than um, than the youngest, but or the oldest, sorry. But so when this happened, they were really young. And so it took uh, he and his wife some time to actually tell them about me. Mm-hmm. And when they did tell the kids, you know, they were excited and you know, one of them was like, that's awesome. I've always wanted a sister. And the other one was like, that's so cool. Now what's for dinner? Yeah. <laughs> but you know, as parents, they were so worried, like, you know, oh my gosh, this is going to like wreck our family. What's going to happen? And yeah. the kids were just like, that's cool. So these yeah. were, so his kids, you're talking about his kids that lived with him that right. his wife was. Okay. Social yeah. children. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you meant other donors that, that he had donated. Yeah. To other. Okay. Gotcha. So those it's, it's, I, I hate these terms, but it just makes it so much easier for, um, to organize. So yes. social children would be the ones that they reared. Okay. Um, and I hate this term so much. Diblings with a D would be like your donor siblings. Social children, siblings. Um, and then you have your, if there's some sort of like fraud, then it's your illegitimate siblings or illegitimate offsprings. And what is that? So that would be, if, if there was some sort of fraud that took place with conception, okay. then it would be an illegitimate one. Oh, that's a fantastic label to put on someone's forehead their whole life. It makes therapy so fun. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's i uh, I'm sure a therapist came up with that term. Like I'm going to clean up after this one. Right. Um, okay. So you're, you're developing relationships with his social children and do you know any of your diblings? <laughs> no, not at this point. Okay. Now they did say that um, when I had asked California Cry Bank, they did say that Steve was a pretty popular donor. Okay. And so I had always assumed that there were going to be more. And it wasn't until three, two or three years ago that those commercial DNA testing websites started becoming very popular. <laughs> and so for, if your donor conceived, that's a really easy way to, um, to find your half siblings mm-hmm. or your biological father. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, like the 23 and me and things like that. Right. So 23 and me family tree, 
ancestry.com. Oh my gosh. I feel like there's so many of them now, yeah. but yeah, those would probably be the three most popular. Okay. So, so for a period of what, 12 to what, maybe 14, 15 years, 15 years. he's dad, he officiates mm-hmm. your wedding, mm-hmm. walks you down the, well, no, did he walk you down the aisle or did he? No, my husband's dad walked me down the aisle. Okay. Okay. Um, all right. So life is hunky dory. Everything's perfect. Mm-hmm. Disney princess. <laughs> and then what happened? So last, was it last January? Yes. Last, so a year and a half ago, um, my son was really struggling with some pretty significant uh, medical issues. And at the direction of his doctors, we did 23andMe plus health because that was the easiest way to really gain genetic variations on him. And instead of putting him under for a seventh surgery before his fourth birthday, that's just what we decided to do. So I got a kit for him. I got a kit for my husband. I got a kit for myself. I had already done Ancestry.com. And I was still kind of learning about the platforms because I don't know what Cinnamorgans are. I don't, you know, the predicted relationships aren't really right. I mean, it was a whole new world. This was kind of, you know, newer technology. And I was just so laser focused on trying to figure out what the hell is wrong with my son. So, um, so I, I, we get on there and we're connected and, um, and two half brothers pop up. And so I talked to both of them. I'm like really excited. One's, 13 years older than I am, which I did not expect. And then another one's five years older. I kind of thought I was the oldest one. So I was, you know, okay. But I was just so excited. I didn't care. Right. I'm presuming these are half brothers from your, your donor. Donor. Correct. So I'm talking with them. They both know their donor conceived. So this is not news to them. And, uh, but they don't have any information and I'm sitting here like, no, but y'all, I already know our donor already done all the work. It's fine. And, um, and so, but then I was like, Ooh, I don't want to be the middleman. So I yeah. called Steve dad and I was like, Hey, can you do ancestry and 23 and me? So that way, you know, if it gives you guys a platform. So if you send a message and they decide to respond then there's not me caught in the middle being like, no, he's really cool. Please talk to him. Yeah. You know? right. So <laughs> I was like, I don't want to be responsible for that. Yeah. So, so he did. And Steve's kit came, got lost, all that kind of stuff. Um, he had to like get one again. So he was like way behind this. So then one night I was looking at a first cousin and are you familiar with 23 and me, the way the websites? Yes. So it'll say, you know, close family to first cousin or something, not necessarily half sibling. So I assumed that it was a half brother. I finally get a hold of him um, through LinkedIn because he's not on social media, doesn't, you know, check the platform anymore. And he um, only checked LinkedIn. So talking to him and he doesn't know he's donor conceived. And I, it was just, that was kind of weird. So I was like, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I just, I hate to be the person to tell you this, but I'm your half sister and you know, walking him through this. And he's like, no, I just, this, I really don't think I am. And I'm, I'm over here kind of like, you know, minimizing him of like, no, you are, and you're in denial and it's okay. Oh no, geez. <laughs> so we go back and we look and I was like, all right, I'm just going to humor him. And so we go back and look on the, the connection. I was like, well, it says we could be first cousins. Why don't you tell me about your uncles? And he said, well, I, I have one uncle. Oh, who's actually from the area you grew up. His name is Kim Maury's. And I said, oh shit that's my mom's fertility doctor. And then it was just like the world just came. I'm like, what are the chances that 
my mom's fertility doctor is my half brother's uncle. I was like, this isn't, no, this isn't right. So then I started looking at all of the like other second, third cousins and looking at those last names. And, and then I started building out a, what's called a mirror tree. And then I started looking at like, you know, the, the medical stuff and, and what had come back for my son is that he has celiac disease, which is autoimmune disorder. Hmm. And his doctors right before I discovered this were like, no, no, it's genetic. Like somebody has gluten intolerance or something and nobody in both families had had that. And so I went back, I built the mirror tree and I was like, there's, there's literally no one else. And I, I told my mom, I have never seen anyone in shock before until I told her to the point where she was like shaking, asking the same question over and over again. I mean, just, it was completely traumatic. What, what, what exactly did you tell her though? Your, I, about your son or about? About the, the daughter. Oh, I went to her and okay. I said, mom, I have a lot of pretty concrete evidence that Steve is not my dad and it's actually Dr. McMorris. And had Steve gotten his 23andMe back yet? Not yet. Not yet. But it's, not yet. It, the writing's on the wall quite literally on, on your computer screen at least. Yeah. And then it's kind of like all those red flags that were kind of building. But I just, why would I believe otherwise? Right. And we never did a DNA test because, you know, 13, 14 years ago, that was way more expensive than just spitting in a cup and $59 later being linked to 3000 of your closest relatives. Right. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so that was, it was very eye opening to say the least. Did you, when did you, I'm sorry, what's the doctor's name again? Ken McMorris. Ken. So Ken, like Ken is, is your dad. Yes. That's that cool. is. And he, again, we're from a small community. Like I, I didn't, I wasn't close with him or his social children growing up, but, um, but I mean, we, I definitely saw them around. So it's just kind of weird to think that, you know, what if I, what if I would have dated one of my half brothers? Oh, that's had no idea. Yeah. And so that's one of the reasons why my mom was very adamant about not having a local donor is because nobody leaves very rarely do people, you know, leave a small town and how would she know if I had a half brother or not? Right. So the biodiversity concerns of that are, are definitely a big concern. So uh, when did you talk to Ken? Like, what, what was that like? I mean, and tell us how that all unfolded. Yeah. So I didn't know what to do for a while and I didn't, I didn't know how to tell Steve and I really wanted more concrete evidence with, with all of this. So that's when I went back and I got my mother's medical records that she had kept. Thank God. And then I really started to look at, you know, all the fraud that was in that. And, um, I called California cryobank and then got their purchasing records to see if there was enough volume for him to do all the inseminations. But more than that, I mean, I just, I really wanted to know why, like, why would you use your own sperm without my parents' knowledge and without my parents' consent? Right. And then I called a friend who was a lawyer and I was just like, I don't know what to do. Like, right. do I, I, you know, I know that I would never go confront him by myself. Do I need to bring a lawyer? Do I need to do a letter? Does it need to be in writing? Like, what do I do? And oh he was like, well, let me get back to you. So he called me back like a few days later and he was like, Hey Eve, there is nothing to do this. There's not a civil cause of action. There's not a criminal cause of action. You have statute of limitation issues. Nothing fits nicely with this, not even deceptive trade acts. Hmm. That blew my mind. 
blew my mind that there was potentially no measurable accountability for this. I mean, I had had a 13 year relationship and I still do, but still, I mean, it's incredibly disruptive. This was my oh my mom's gosh. fertility doctor that she yeah. trusted. Oh, when the rug is going completely ripped out from underneath you. Oh, it's awful. I mean, this is about consent, trust, transparency. It was horrible. So then at that point, um, I mean, I was still just trying to figure out, you know, what I was going to do. And my son, we, once we had all this medical information, got him on track, then I was like, okay, life's like kind of normal. And I was having coffee with a girl that I went to grad school with who used to work at Inside Edition. And she was like, hey, can I connect you with one of my friends at 2020? And um, I was like, yeah, oh, I don't really have to do that, but, <laughs> but yeah, I'll just, I'll talk to her and ended up talking to her. And, um, and then, you know, the rest of the story with that <laughs> did 2020. <laughs> yeah. I think that's where I saw you. So, mm-hmm. um, so you did eventually uh, confront Ken on this. I did. So I sent him a letter that explained who I was, um, that my mother was one of his patients. And I wanted to know, I had so many questions around the circumstances of my conception. Right. And, and kind of talked a little bit about, you know, how challenging the identity proportion was for me. I'm, I'm tired of starting over. This is the third time I've had to start over with this. And, um, and, and yeah, and he, he wrote back to me fairly quickly and he said, I mean, honestly, it was just like a total smoke and mirror show at this point, Right. but he had said, you know, gave me like his protocols for you know, his AID program. And, um, it was kind of funny. It was like, it seems like you may have inherited some of my, um, genetics and I'm like some, why don't you try yeah. 50%, yeah. but very much like very hesitant, like here's all the information I have. And then hopefully this is going to go away type thing. And, um, but we, we had, I think we, we went back and forth 12 times and, you know, in the 2020, you only saw that first letter and not everything else. And there were multiple versions of the truth that he was giving me. And so, um, I really didn't feel like he was going to continue to be honest with me about anything. And, and then I also had this like really strong, um, realization that I have a duty to inform other victims. But I gotta tell you, I mean, I hated everything about this. Like I I didn't want to come forward. Um, It would be so much easier for me to just pretend like this never happened. But what if I had a half sibling out there that was missing this medical information and you know, their child depended on it like mine did Mm -hmm. or, you know, I mean, everyone has a right to their identity and this, that was very frustrating and it was very conflicting, but I, I recognized early on that the only healing to take place with this was to make this bigger than myself. Mm-hmm. And the way that I had identified that was to go and to change that law, to advocate for women's reproductive rights, reproductive technologies, they are only becoming more popular we have essentially no data on it because it's self-regulated. The FDA won't touch it. Um, and, or they're supposed to regulate it, but that's about as much as they do. The CDC won't touch it because it's not a communicable disease. Hmm. So it's really frustrating to, you kind of quite literally this falls between the cracks. Yeah. So, so that's what I did. So I started lobbying for a fertility fraud bill and the, um, infertility rates right now, 
is I think it went up from 12.1% to 12.4% just in the past two or three years. So we can assume that a percentage of those people are going to use um, donor gametes and artificial reproductive technologies. Hmm. The LGBT community, we can assume that they have to use these 100% of the time if they want to have children. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, our, our social norms are changing. Women are waiting longer to have children and without a partner. Mm -hmm. So these reproductive technologies are only becoming more popular with no measurable accountability when it comes to a bad actor. Yeah. It's the wild west. It is absolutely the wild, wild west for sure. Yeah. There's so, I mean, technology is pushing and moving so quickly that our legal system is just not keeping up to pace. Right. I, I hear that in uh, industry to industry across the board. It's, it's mm -hmm. outpacing what our governmental system can keep up with. So I'm sure that that's incredibly frustrating. Um, oh, it absolutely is. <laughs> what's, what's your relationship like now with Ken? Is it, still have you confronted him in person at all yet or no not in person i oh i don't know if i could have done that yeah. <laughs> at least not with like cameras around you know like i just oh, I really, of course you know my whole my whole focus was with this was you know, I'm about changes, not about charges with him. There hasn't been a lawsuit filed. There hasn't been a medical board complaint filed. This was my duty to inform. And then that's it. Hmm. That was I mean, my focus. I didn't want to make it a personal vendetta. I didn't want to cause <clears throat> unnecessary harm. I just wanted to inform his other victims and, and just move on. Yeah. That's smart of you, especially with kids and a life of your own. I mean, that would rob you of a lot of that. Um, yeah. I don't know how much healing there is um, if I was going to be vindictive about it, you know? Right. Right. Um, but at the same time, <laughs> man, like he obviously did this knowingly. I mean, you don't, that's a pretty big fuck up. Oh, it's huge. It is huge. Um, and he said in his communication that there was one to two of us. And at the time, I already There's knew. There's no way. No. I already he, knew that there was once, three. He's got a lot. <laughs> Which I is in another, uh, an open door for you. Like, how many other half brothers and sisters do you have out there? And, oh, man. How is and this? And I just had a new one pop up. So yeah. now we're at four. So, again, another, another lie. <laughs> like last week, right? Uh, two days ago. Or two days ago. Jeez. Two days ago. And, and she had no idea she was donor conceived. Um, and she's, she's trying to navigate that. She doesn't want to talk to her parents. And How old is she? About it. Um, she's 36. So five years so old. So her parents just never told her. No. But Didn't. here's the thing. Was it supposed to be an IUI with the dad's sperm? And he just decided to use his own? Oh, but does she not look like her family though? Or was there ever any question about no. who am I or how come I'm a foot taller than everybody else? Or like, <laughs> well, it's funny you say that because I'm the shortest one so far at five, seven. <laughs> um, and the tallest one is six, six. So oh my goodness. Six, two. <laughs> wow. Do you see no. yourself in them at all? You know, it's weird. I do. It's the, I think it's like, it's kind of like the slanted eyes and then the really kind of small facial features, you know, like yeah. the, like, like wider face. Is that, and then is that what Ken looks like? Um, yeah, a little bit. A little bit. Yeah. yeah, definitely. So it's really interesting. How is that affecting your 
like just emotionally and, and maybe even spiritually with, with your husband, with your family, with your kids, like, are you, do you know who, how much does that challenge your sense of self? And cause that can be a huge psychological battle if not rooted, you know, if you're not anchored into who, you know, you are on a spiritual level or something like that. How does that affect you? It's very much a identity crisis. I even think that, you know, for people who are very well adjusted and emotionally healthy, this is something that they struggle with. Um, it's, I get the term for it is like a non-parent expected result. And so if you think of it as like, think of like your life as like, um, or your identity is like a Jenga structure, right? The game. Mm -hmm. So your foundation is, those are your biological roots, right? So you mm -hmm. live your whole life and you're just building on this foundation mm -hmm. and then you have this non-parent expected and it's quite literally taking that bottom Jenga block out and then trying to maintain balance and equilibrium with all of it. It's, it's hard mm -hmm. because you, it's so, it's such a central part of your identity and you're trying to assimilate and accommodate this new information into your self construct. Yeah. How do you do that effectively? Yeah especially when there is such a um like a negative connotation with it right, right because now right. i have to process not only that i'm donor conceived i'm doctor conceived so the illegitimacy side of that it can be argued that i'm the product of medical rape as well how do you tease apart all of that on top wow. of that so, so there's a lot to really process hmm. And, and it can be difficult at times to process that mm -hmm. my illegitimacy status and my existence is a direct reflection on this doctor's character. So even if we were going to attempt to have a genuine and um, authentic relationship, I'm not sure if it ever could have happened. So that's hard too, because I don't feel like I get a fair chance of really having or knowing what it's like to have a biological father mm -hmm. just because of what that means. How is he supposed to explain me to our small town? That's it, truthful. Right. So and then he, how I mean, are we able to have a genuine relationship? Oh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> and then how do you internalize that as part of your identity? Oh, that's crazy. Does he, he must have known too, I would think growing, like just seeing these kids and, you know, knowing who he inseminated, like, that's my daughter right there. There she goes. She's doing her thing. Like, that's not weird. That's so weird. I know. This really, this really is rape. Go, absolutely. This is you rape. are inserting yourself Yes. Inside of a woman without their consent, without, without consent. their knowledge, and you're having a child with them. This should be absolutely rape. What's so, this? I'm sorry? I was just going to ask you what the statute of limitations was on that. Um, for rape, I don't know. But see, this is the problem, is that when it comes to sexual assault, and I think pretty much every single state, fraud and deception are not considered sexual assaults. That's why I'm saying it needs to be reclassified. Right. Screw, and, the, screw the fraud for a second and just go, this is just straight unadulterated rape. Right. And like, that's when I went to Senator Huffman and she drafted the language for the fertility fraud bill. It expanded the definition of sexual assault to include this fact pattern. Oh, good. Okay. And what it did is she brought it down to a state jail felony of two um, years per count and the reason why she did that is because she really didn't want to, um, to take away from very traumatic rape. So it was a start. 
Right. Since the start. And especially in this, you know, political climate, I was really proud of Texas for, you know, um, passing this part for women's reproductive rights. Well, I mean, how could anybody be opposed to that? You know what? That is a really good point. And there (laughs) was some opposition. (laughs) What, what, what would be, I mean, I'm, I'll keep an open door or an open thought on that. Like what would be the potential abuse of, of somebody using that in a way that's, you know, not to serve justice? So I think that the, because of the way she wrote the language, it was so nearly tailored that there's really no room for argument with it Mm -hmm. because you would have to come out and say, no, I think it's okay for a doctor to inseminate his patients with his own sperm without telling them. Yeah, that, just from the way she wrote it. Right. The opposition came with the state representative that was his best friend, who told um, me that I should be grateful. Oh, good old, good old politics. Yeah, right. And the good old boy club too. <laughs> Super yeah. fun. Oh, Which brings me to another point. Conception gratitude kills me when people say, "Oh, you should just be thankful. You're alive. You wouldn't be here without him." Right. And um, well, at least you got good genes, and you know, it's like those at least the oughts, you shoulds, right. wouldn't type thing. And you know, what I've noticed is that. I think as a society, we're generally very uncomfortable when we talk about sperm and eggs and especially infertility. And so it's, you know, by saying those kind of blanketed statements, it's a way for the person talking to displace their own discomfort, right? Yeah. So it's like when someone dies, oh, at least they had a good life because we don't know what to say versus this really sucks and you're going to miss them a lot. Yeah. The difference between the two? Oh, totally. Totally. It's, you know, and I think, I think it's something that uh, people born in traditional uh, relationships and grew up with traditional mom and dad that they just take for granted. Like you were talking about the, the Django foundation. There's, you're talking about building everything on top of that. I, I would be willing to bet that most people don't realize that there's a whole foundation under which uh, their identity sits on that they don't even really acknowledge or appreciate. Oh, absolutely. To have you share your story is, is for those people to hopefully be a little bit more enlightened to say, Hey, this is, there's a part of me that was given to me that's been honest, that's been pure, that's been, you know, uh, clear. And there's value in that. And thank you, mom and dad. And and not to take anything away from you, but that does suck. Like that is, you know, it's robbing your life. Like what else would you be focused on with your time and energy? So uh, that's just, that's a- No, you're, you're 100% right. Yeah. And I explain it to you as like, think about it. It's like pitch black outside. There's no lights. You're driving down the road. How do you stay in the lanes? How do you know that you're not going to run off the road? Well, you have those, you know, the two, the lines, you know, the, the reflecting lines. And those are kind of like your biological parents in a sense. Like yeah. these are the boundaries. It keeps you safe. It's not some big, you know, family secret. That's another thing. Yeah. Family secrets. When you're donor conceived, and your family's keeping it from you. Like this is a highly regarded information and, and family secrets just eat away. There's this psychological theory called the thought unknown. And what it basically says is that you grow up thinking that something is just a little bit off, but you don't know what you don't have the words to put towards mm-hmm. it. And, um, and then you, you find the family secret, no matter what it is. And then everything makes sense. And so there's still, there's kind of like this underlying subconscious relational patterns underneath it. So it's really interesting. I went through that. I went through that. I um, grew up by many accounts from the outside looking in anyway. It was the, the 
perfect family. You know, the, my mother was an amazing mother. Cookies, you know, when we got home from school, wonderful home-cooked meals. My dad kicked ass at work. He made a lot of money. Like, we had this great upbringing. And then um, very quickly, just all the dominoes fell where my mom ended up getting sick. She passed on. Uh, 18 months later, my dad came out of the closet, told us he was gay. And that was a pretty big family secret. And it, and it challenged a lot of my own identity issues mm-hmm. of like, same thing with you. Like, should I even be here? Like if everybody was telling the truth and, 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 and full integrity within themselves, which by the way, I give, I have full empathy and understanding of where my father was at the time and the socially, it's just, you couldn't really come out then right. different time now, which is a good thing, but it's still, those are questions that I deal with or that I think about. It's like, man, if, if everybody was true to their heart, like I probably wouldn't even be around. But at the same time, there's also the part of me that's kind of like, I'm here, baby. Like, <laughs> you, know, you got me. Like now I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm, gonna swing the sledgehammer and make a dent in the world as possible yeah no kidding well but I think it's it's that when it's it's that secret it's was my entire life a lie yeah these are the people that we trust the most and they were lying to us that's hard it's totally hard but I I think you know at some point you do kind of have that choice of, well, what do I do with it now? And I think that that's where kind of, you know, the positive psychology comes into play. And I think it's important to, you know, name it to tame it. And if this is what it is. Now, what am I going to do about it? Right. And that's, that's really where I kind of came to the fork in the road. I can just pretend like it's never happened or I can pick up the sledgehammer and make changes. Right. I we know that. what it is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you, do you have a therapist that you work with to help navigate some of the, the dark roads? I do. I'm a therapist myself though. So I'm probably the worst patient ever. (laughs) Oh, you're, you're, you're doing surgery on yourself. That's exactly what it is. Oh, that's a, that's a double-edged sword. I would imagine. Yeah. It's not fun. I I just monologue (laughs) in therapy is all I do. I literally monologue and, you know, process and very cognitive with things I've been told. Right. Um, But you know, I think it serves me pretty well. Well, for you to have navigated those waters yourself, uh, I'm sure it lends itself to a, a much higher level of therapy for your clients, I'm sure. Uh, do you have other clients that are in the same boat as you? I do not. I've, you know, I've talked to people on, like I said earlier, people who you know, messaged me on Facebook, but you know, most of my um, career has been focused on um, sex therapy and trauma with children. Mm-hmm. And so I don't see a lot of adults. And then with having small children myself, it's really difficult for me to counsel children my age. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I've kind of just been hanging out as a stay-at-home mom. <laughs> well, that's beautiful. Yeah. So it's um, what I do now. And I mean, oh man, lobbying for this bill was insane. Um, I realized that I was more concerned about my um, top 10 friends on MySpace during my government classes than actually paying attention. So I had no idea what I was getting. Oh, God, That's why I was doing that. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've been down that road a few times myself. Um, so what is it like? How much time does that take of your day? Is that a, how, how long is that? road do you know so i the lobbying yeah part i started in january and i went down once a week until mid-may and i would wake up at five austin is about three and a half hours from dallas and i would either um fly or drive to austin 
I would meet with legislators all day long. So anywhere from eight meetings to 15 meetings. And I would tell my story over and over and over again. Hmm. I had to testify twice in the House Committee as well as the Senate Committee. And um, yeah, so I did that every single week. And then I would come home that night and get home at like 11. So um, it was very emotionally exhausting, but it was also very therapeutic. It was very validating to see all of these legislators um, really want to take up this issue and Mm -hmm. really want to protect the future of vulnerable people. So then when this story actually aired and, um, you know, East Texas did not receive it well, this doctor is a very loved man. And um, it was crazy that I was the villain in this. You know, it's the typical rape culture with victim shaming and victim blaming, mm-hmm. right? And so that was, that was really hard feedback to mm-hmm. get. But it, it really what it told me is that for my other half siblings that are in the area, they don't have a voice because of this. Mm-hmm. I'm a little bit further removed. I already did this. And so, you know, I, I am their voice for that now. So I was telling you about the half sister. She's like, I can't, nobody can know about this. I mean, everybody, this would, this would hurt my job. People wouldn't, you know, look at me the same way. I would have to make a statement that would have to be supportive of him maybe. And so that's, that reaffirmed why I had to do this. Absolutely. It does suck. Um, I mean, is there a part of you even that's like, do I even tell them? I mean, maybe they just live in happy bliss, you know, ignorant bliss. Yeah. Yeah, there, yes, there is. But I think um, now when you see you're connected to my name and you Google me, um, there's no going back. Yeah, yeah. Jeez. What's I know. Your, what's it's your relationship? It's very sad. Um, what's, what's the light at the end of the tunnel? Do you have a silver lining to this? If you can wave a magic wand and, and have your wishes come true, what, is, what does healing look like? Well, I really think the bill was the healing part of this, Um, making this bigger than myself. I I actually asked the doctor to join me to advocate together. Um, We could talk about how, you know, this is the thinking at the time. It was wrong. And look at what we're doing together to protect future vulnerable people. He had no interest in doing that. You're talking about Ken? Yeah. So I asked him. I asked him to do this with me. Wow. Yeah, he didn't just uh, show up with a bow and say, yeah, absolutely. I'm ready to do that. It's that Disney princess thing in me, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can't, can't shake that one. Um, but the silver lining would be, you know, I got I got the bill done. I got it passed first session in four months. Oh, we did get passed. Okay. I missed that. Yeah. I'm sorry. It is sitting on um, the governor's desk waiting for his signature. He already uh-huh. tweeted out his support. So that was that was really good. And as much as I would hate for any more half siblings to pop up that that would be the silver lining or right I, I don't want anybody to have to go through this but you know even i have two half brothers that they didn't agree with my course of action and they really just wanted to pretend like this never happened and you know it it hurts that i don't have relationships with them anymore because yeah. of it but i just i felt really strongly about my duty to inform and everybody has a right to their identity and i, I don't get to keep that from them yes um, but yeah, I don't know. I guess that's the silver lining. That's as good as it gets for me today. Well, <laughs> I, silver I think, lining and positivity. I mean, I think, I think having the book finally closed is, is probably a huge, uh, silver lining. And then to know the truth finally once and for all, and the dust finally settles and you have your family and your kids and you know, what is, what does, uh, 
let's go, let's talk about that real quick on that front. What is, what does life look like past all of the craziness that you've dealt with? Oh, past all the doctor daddy issues. Um, and I don't know, probably another baby and just really focused on small children for a while. Um, not the stuff, (laughs) but I mean, I, I'm preparing myself for, you know, a potential wave of half siblings. I don't know. Have you seen, have you looked at any of the other doctor daddy cases? No. There's multiple um, mm. around the world now. And I mean, they have anywhere from two to 70. So it's, um, I'm just kind of trying to prepare for that. But as far as the future, I don't know. I'm really looking forward to some normalcy. That sounds yeah. really good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, well, if it's any consolation, I think <laughs> it's funny because I've been through a lot of you know, psychological, personal development stuff and psychological challenging my own identity and things of that nature. And um, I've come to the conclusion that normal to me is somebody that's just simply aware of all the dysfunction in their life. (laughs) Like if, if you don't feel that there's dysfunction, you're probably missing something. (laughs) At this point I'm putting the fun in dysfunction. So (laughs) there you go. Exactly. Literally the (laughs) F-U-N. Hey, if you're gonna, you know, it's the blue pill and the red pill, right? You know, you take the truth. I just heard about this. What? This theory, the blue pill and the red pill theory. What? I, that's what this person said. They're like, how are you a therapist? You've never heard of this. I was like, I don't know. Didn't you see the matrix? Uh, I was what? like in fourth grade. And like, Who oh, are you? Oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> so Top Gun. I haven't seen that either. You haven't seen Top Gun? No. What or Princess name? Bride. Well, you've been, oh my goodness. Those are like the classics. I was two, two. You were two, but well, and you had a few other things on your plate that you were dealing with. So totally. we'll give you a little bit of a pass, but that's I Game of Thrones. That counts. That, well, there's where all your time is gone. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. To, well, there's the silver lining. You get to actually watch all these great movies from the past. All right, I'm adding them to my list. What is your, uh, what's your relationship like with, uh, shoot, I'm sorry. I forgot his name. Steve. Steve. Donor 106. 106, yes. It's the same. I mean, he's, he is so amazing. The crazy thing is, is that part of the explanation the doctor gave is that he was thawing these straws and there was less than 5% motility with this. But somehow in between the time that like two years before I was born and two years after I was born, there are eight other half siblings. So he has since last year he has found eight of his donor conceived offspring is there a law against doctors being uh, providers as no. well like there probably yeah. should be like you couldn't even i mean if he was i don't know if he was smart he would say oh no i was a donor as well and uh we just screwed up the, the test tubes or whatever i don't know well that is kind of what he said he said his first explanation was that he went back to his medical school donation days okay. which would have been between 10 and 14 years and he got those old straws brought them back and inseminated my mother with those yeah I'm not but he that. didn't know what his donor number was i'm just trying to think of like how do you go back to your school and you say, Hey, I graduated like over a decade ago. I don't know my donor number. Can you give me my semen? See, that's what I'm saying. Like if he had, if it, if it was an honest mistake, then there should be, you know, five or 10 legitimate donor babies that he knows, or maybe they reached out to him and he has real relationships. And Oh my God. Like I would Mm -hmm. think if that actually was an honest mistake, he would 
be just a surprise and oh my gosh we got to get this you know i want to make sure that there's clarity and let me help like i don't know none of that's adding up no 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 no. and then his story switched to a local donor program so he was just saying that he was a local donor in his local donor program yeah but the medical notes that's not what the medical notes said yeah it's not yeah i know um so when you think of dad do you think of Mm -hmm. steve i do and i think of doug and weirdly enough, I think of Kim. Um, and I don't think that's weird at all. I, I mean, I, I get that. But, and see, I think this was the, this was the part that I struggled with so much and that like conflicting um, feelings is that uh, I touched on a little bit earlier, but oh, man, I just all, I wanted to know who he was so, so bad. Right? right. Like I wanted to know him. He is my biological father. It's like this invisible string. But mm-hmm. then at the same time, I just could not get over what he did to my mother. Right. And, and then I really had to process the illegitimacy part. And once I was able to process through, you know, I am an illegitimate child of him and a direct reflection on his character. Then I was able to really recognize that having that genuine and authentic relationship was very unlikely. Mm-hmm. And, and that hurt because I felt like I didn't, I don't get a fair chance of that. Yeah. Whereas if, it, if I were just donor conceived, then maybe I, w- I would have a fair chance because it would be, you know, an even playing field. Yeah. But when you're donor conceived, you're on an Island. When you're doctor conceived, you're just on a completely different Island. Oh, you're on another solar system. And you asked about it earlier, but it's, it's hard when you think about if you're suffering with anxiety, depression, or even like adoption challenges or something, you Google it and you find the expert. When you're a doctor conceived, there's nothing. There yeah, is no you're, expert. You're in uncharted territory, really. Yeah. yeah. So that's why the getting the bill passed was very healing for me mm-hmm. um, because I felt like I did something with it yep. instead of just pretending like nothing ever happened. No, that's huge. Yeah, you have a lot of courage to uh, to go down there and make that happen, and to deal with you know some people that are like you said your your other diblings or your other <laughs> family members or whatever that are you know, frustrated or pissed off that you did that. That's that's not an easy path. Yeah, but um, it worked out. Let me ask you a question. I so I've talked with a lot of guys that have. Um, there's just a lot of people that have father issues for whatever, whatever their crazy stories are. I know one guy, he wrote a book that, um, you know, his dad died and then, uh, an alcoholic stepdad moved in and then, and he was amazing. And that was his dad for a while. And then he left and then another guy showed up and then he found his real dad again. It was like same father issues, same craziness in the father sense. Mm-hmm. What have you learned, um, about, uh, being a man about being a good father for children. Like how important is that piece in society? Cause I am seeing that being a huge void for so many in our culture, really. I mean, we just, mm-hmm. all this toxic masculinity and all mm-hmm. the things that men are doing wrong and that whatever, like, what is, what is the, what does right look like? What does a good father, good man look like to you? To me, I think it is someone that is there. I think that having, biological parents is incredibly important, at least for the child. Mm-hmm. Um, I recognize that circumstances don't always lend that to be the case. But, um, you know, when you talk about toxic masculinity and things like that, I think that being empathetic, being open, being honest, and really kind of changing our social constructs and our social narratives of what it means to be 
a father. Mm-hmm. Now, the interesting thing in, in our culture is we, we value having a strong father, right? You know, like the man's man. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because that social narrative, what it teaches us is a little bit of that disconnect. Boys don't cry, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And so how are you able to be close with a father, but then also, you know, n- not be like, touchy-feely and you, you know it goes against you see what I'm trying to say like the two competing the social narrative and what we really want and what we really need yeah so when it comes to me I don't know because it's you know my construct of a father has been so fluid and constantly changing and I mean I've had to start over three times with this right and, um but you also said something earlier that really resonated with me that you know if I didn't have to worry about um those people. And and what it is, is it's the defined relationship and the undefined relationships that are so important. Mm -hmm. If we get the rejection, name it to tame it, boom, boom, done. But if it's undefined, we're constantly wondering what it is and who that person is. It's a challenge. And then when Mm -hmm. it does our social construct, does not meet up with our social narrative? I think that there's like some competing and conflicting thoughts with that as well. Yeah. So, um, I don't know if they answered your question, but I could see, I mean, I absolutely understand how, how difficult it is. It's like having your browser open. You've got like all the apps working in the background. It's just sucking the energy. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think, I think it is. I, I think that people really don't, um, I don't think that they recognize, especially when it comes to donor conception. I don't think that they recognize um, the importance of at least knowing who those biological parents are. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of overcompensation that comes with it. But, um, and then we have our social stigmas and social constructs that compete with it as well. I think a lot of um, American society stuff is very backwards anyway. And this would probably be one of them. It's like the father that's sitting on the couch watching, you know, football while the mom's doing all the household chores. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it's interesting, I think. It is. It's super. (laughs) No, 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 no. I'm, you know, you provide a very, very unique um, perspective and experience and and voice in, in that question, I think. Um, And have, you know, some, you have experience that a lot of people don't. And so I was curious just what your thought is on that. But I do think it is something that culturally, societally, we are really struggling to identify. Like what does women's, um, rights and women's liberation and women's empowerment has evolved so much over the last 40, 50 years. And how does, where does a solid man fit into that? How, what does that look like? What is a, what does an ideal relationship look like? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have your traditionalists that, that talk about, well, we've already, we've already done it. Like we need to go back. And then you, mm-hmm. but you also look at, well, but we're not who we were then. Like we're different now. So how do we relate today? It's a question I continually ask. I, you know, I'm always, wanting to refine and figure out what is that that ideal at least look like so we have something to point towards i don't think it's one i think that i think that it's multiple constructs because it just depends on the person i agree with that to a point but i I do think that there's value in having some sense of clarity like you were talking about with a mother and a father you know if we're in the dark like let's at least have barriers right or or some guidelines to serve us and help us and obviously, if somebody chooses something differently and that works for them and there's value and they're not struggling and they're not psychologically like have this void, then, then A, more power to them, right? But um, I think at least as a society, it's helpful to think about, all right, 
we know what toxic masculinity looks like for those that are mm-hmm. defining it that way. What does true masculinity look like? What is, right. what does that empathetic, but also strong uh, man look like in a household and in, in our society? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then I think too, there's, you know, there's something called just being good enough, good enough parenting, mm-hmm. being a good enough son. I think that there needs to be a lot of flexibility within those roles as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but that goes back to empathy, right? Yes. And then really kind of canceling out this idea of perfection. Yeah. There's, there's, that's not going (laughs) to (laughs) happen. Not not on this plane of existence. (laughs) No, no, Um, no. But I do. I love that exploration of that. Well, Eve, this has been uh, an an amazing conversation. I appreciate you sharing your journey. I know it's not been easy, but um, I I know that your voice is reaching people that need to hear it and uh, that you're, you're certainly serving um, being a force for good in the world, which I acknowledge and I uh, think is amazing. So thank you for those, for those that are listening that uh, may, <laughs> maybe may your half sis, sister or brother, Hi guys. Right. <laughs> or, uh, or, or they think, you know, that they have uh, a similar situation. How can they reach out to you? Where can they find you? you know, I think the easiest place is probably Facebook and it's okay. just Eve Andrews Wiley but yes, I mean, I, I feel like I, you know, I talk to lots of people where they have, they have, you know, non-parent expected or they're in a similar situation. They want to do legislation in their state. Um, I'm very open to all communication. Awesome. Eve, thank you so much for your time today. Okay, thank you. All right, take care.